We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. These sections are once again um, grouped together because of proximity, not necessarily because of topic. And it's interesting because as I'm reading them, I'm like, okay, uh, they're not that long. There's not a whole lot here. Well, what what do I what do I get from this? And I think I found that there was a lot more that I got from some of the tools that the church has for helping us understand the context of these sections like the historical background to them than necessarily directly what I got from the verses. So it was kind of interesting from the first, from section 85, the first thing I got from it was it's important to keep a history, right? Which is kind of what it brings up in the lesson. Make sure that you're keeping a history. And in this sense, they wanted to make sure that they had a good idea of who the members of the church were, who had consecrated of their, their possessions, uh, for the church so that they could also know who to divvy back out supplies to, you know. And when you're talking about entering into that covenant of the law of consecration, there may have been people who had joined the church but hadn't really entered into that covenant of consecration yet. And so basically it was like we need to know who is involved in this law of consecration and who deserves what they refer to as an inheritance, right? What do you deserve to to be able to pull back out of the pool? And I think there were people that were kind of like, yeah, I believe this and I'm interested in the cause and I want to join Zion and all that. I'm not 100% sure if I want to join the whole law of consecration thing yet. And so the Lord's basically saying, I need to, we need to have a clear record of who's in all the way and who is not um, so that we can administer these, these resources properly. Um, and I think for them that was super important just because they didn't want anyone to be contributing and not getting anything or getting things without contributing. But in the greater picture of like keeping a history and keeping a record and all of that, um, I think it teaches us individually a lesson that we need to be keeping a record of our own things and we need to keep a record of our own life. And if it's important enough to the Lord to just know who who's involved in things. We also need to be aware of like, what are we doing? Um, how can we keep a record of our, our proceedings of our lives, whether it's a journal, whether it's a, uh, I've heard of people doing video, like almost like a video journal. For a while I've done uh, an audio journal because I don't usually have time to sit down and write everything I want to say. I'll just kind of be driving or whatever and I'll hit record on my phone and just kind of talk about what's going on or what, what I'm doing, what I'm thinking so that I can have that record. And there's a lot of different ways to kind of keep that and um, things like that. But I, I don't know. After I, I, This first section, that's that's the biggest thing I got from it was 
how important it was for the Lord to know who all was in and also just in general to keep better records of what they were doing. Yeah, I for me, the term consecration or the law of consecration. In the past, I viewed it as something that you live the gospel and then you make this ultimate commitment later on. <laughs> and that's kind of changed because I think consecration to me, I've always tied it to property in like the United Order or like, you know, like this Zion utopia type of environment. And now I look at it more, if I were to apply this maybe in our day, is like you said, being all in or being fully committed. You be fully committed to the cause. And I think a lot about the scripture of in the Book of Mormon where, where I think at the in in the Book of Mosiah where he says uh, there are many ways to sin and I, there's innumerable ways to sin and I can't name them all. But I can tell you this, if you don't watch your hearts and your minds, you know that scripture. And I kind of think about the law of consecration similarly. There's innumerable ways to help build the kingdom. The Lord's not going to tell you every single one of them. But I'll tell you this, if you're fully committed, you will be of great value and you will be taken care of type of thing. Like the Lord will bless you in return. And that's kind of the way I've been approaching this because... One, we just, in, our, in the last lesson, we, we heard a lot about unity, or the last several lessons, we, you know, the saints being commanded to be united, to, you know, and, and that unity is built on, on, the, on forgiveness. You have to forgive each other. And now the saints in the next chapter, we're going to hear about, you know, a little bit about the civil war. And there is a phrase in there that talks about mourning, and this will cause a lot of people to mourn. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to like live in that era. I would think it'd be very interesting that the Lord is telling us how to and giving the saints instructions on how to set up their community through uh, practical and, and uh, temporal laws that are also based on spiritual principles. And if you do not follow these, inevitably you will be not united and you will have a lot of issues, which they did have. It's one of the biggest uh, stumbling blocks for the early saints was when they themselves, their own members and leaders, went against the gospel. They could almost withstand almost all outside things, although they were terrible and they were driven away and and people were killed and abused and, and, and there was a lot of heartache. I think the the ones that really hurt were when when it was some of that le- led by their previous members and stuff so it comes from this not being able to be united you know so anyway i was saying all that to say that this term consecration to me it's it's kind of a it's hard to define it as a specific actions or attitudes but it's more like if you're fully committed you consecrate yourself to the cause and at least for our day the greatest consecration we that's asked of us is mostly our time. You know, there's not much in the sense of property or or, or other things, um, but for us in the church is our time. You know, it's the church is robust enough where it doesn't need us to to survive. You know, financially as 
in this case, the church needed a lot of help from its members to survive financially and to pay off debts and to and to buy land and to do those things. Now the church needs us more in our day to consecrate our time, you know, and our talents, right? Um, and that a lot of that is just be available, do callings, you know, volunteer. And when we consecrate something, I feel like sometimes the action itself may seem very simple, but what makes it sacred or consecrated is our where our heart is, right? And you know, and I know we've said this in the past, but you know, little things like making the program or you know helping drive kids to a camp, right? Um, you know, just little things that. But that could be an act of consecration done correctly, you know, in the right spirit. And if you look at like the the meaning of the word consecrate, and we may have even talked about this in the past too, because it it kind of comes up not only in doctrine and covenants but also in other ways. It essentially means to make holy or to declare sacred. In Spanish, consagrar, it's even clearer, you know, that there's a there's a tie between this word and, and making something sacred. And I think that that's an interesting way to look at it is you're taking something mundane, something common, and you're making it holy. You're making it sacred. You're, you're elevating it to a new level. And when you're looking at this section in the Joseph Smith's Revelations book, it says Joseph Smith began a letter anticipating a question on the part of Phelps. This is W.W. Phelps. Joseph Smith imagined Phelps wondering what it what was to be the fate of those church members who came to Zion but did not receive an inheritance by consecration from the bishop. Why such individuals may not have received an inheritance is unclear from Joseph Smith's letter, but Phelps discussed this subject in the November 1832 issue of The Evening and Morning Star. After noting that a total of 810 individuals had migrated to Zion since the gathering commenced in 1831, Phelps posed several questions including, have you all fulfilled the law of the church, which saith, Behold, thou shalt consecrate all thy properties, that which thou hast, unto me, with a covenant indeed that cannot be broken? Apparently, at least some individuals had not followed the commandment to consecrate their properties and had consequently not received an inheritance. In writing to Phelps, Joseph Smith highlighted the need for the church to maintain the system of consecration in Zion that previous revelations had established. He explained to Phelps that the Lord's clerk, John Whitmer, was to keep a book of the law of God to record the names of those who consecrated their property and received their inheritance. Individuals who did not comply with the consecration commandment were not to be listed. In this way, the church could keep an orderly record of consecration and of inheritance distributions. Now, like you were saying, today there's no book of the law of God that's being kept of all of us who have or have not done this. But in a way... I think you can view your temple recommend as kind of your own personal way to view. Are you consecrating of your time and talents to the Lord? Um, are you giving, are you active in the church? Are you giving your time on the Sabbath to the Lord? Are you being honest in your dealings with your fellow man? You know, all these questions that come up in the temple recommend interview. Are you doing the types of stuff that shows that you're committed to the gospel beyond just being there, being present? And I think that that's when, when you turn what would be a normal day into a sacred day, that's the Sabbath. When you would take what would be a normal just going to a nice fancy building into a sacred learning experience, that's going to the temple. 
you're consecrating, you're turning the mundane, the common into something holy. And that's what the Lord is asking us to do. And that is something we can do every day, by the way. Um, you have a free hour, you can turn that normal, free, boring, regular hour into a holy hour by studying the scriptures during that time. You can consecrate that, making it sacred. You can turn it into something more than it is at first. Yeah, it's also a type of what the Lord is doing with us, right? <laughs> like our fallen nature gets turned into something better. So section 86. This is kind of the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? Yeah. And, you know, what weird thought I had. So I don't know how much to look into the tares and the wheat and the tares, but, you know, we all know that they look very similar when they're growing up. Uh, when they're young they look and so there's a risk of plucking out wheat when it's actually a tear or vice versa or you're plucking out a tear and but it's actually wheat and it's not till they're fully mature that you can clearly see the difference and not and be able to pluck the tear without pulling the wheat and i thought that was kind of interesting because the lord you know in here it, it kind of talks about uh the angels are very anxious always asking the lord can we go and reap already <laughs> and the lord's saying don't do it yet because the blade is yet tender in verse six for verily your faith is weak unless you destroy the wheat also uh, therefore let the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest is fully ripe then you shall first gather out the wheat from among the tares and after the gathering of the wheat behold and lo the tares are bound in bundles and the field remaineth to be burned so i don't know if this is the right thought but this is the thought i had <laughs> that there are certain things that in the gospel we can do we can go through the motions there's absolutely times where you rely on someone's testimony and there's also times when you are hesitant to adopt uh a new commandment or let go of your previous life or or bad habits or uh and, and that's normal but there's also a time when you have to be fully committed and i'm curious you know if if this is here after we just got talk about consecration or during this phase i know these aren't chronologically you know one after another these verses but it's interesting because I I uh, I can relate to this a lot. Like there are certain aspects where you have you you have to test and, and and you're learning to grow your testimony. But there comes a time when I think you need to be either fully in or fully out. <laughs> you like well not I'm not saying you should be fully out. You should always be fully in, right? <laughs> but there comes a time I think this is. I don't know. That's what I was thinking about this parable is, is um, our commitment to follow the gospel um, needs to be sure. Um, because, you know, just like these tears or even the parable of the of the ten virgins, you know, we we so, some were prepared, some wanted to be prepared, but didn't do what they they should have. Is the wheat and the tares similar where we're growing up together? we look the same we claim to be the same but ultimately in the end we find out we're not the same 
you know. And, and maybe it's not such a parable about comparisons of like how much more of a wheat you are than someone else in your ward and they're the tear. But maybe it's an internal thing where you're saying, how do I ensure that I am the wheat? Yeah, and I think in verse 10, it says, therefore, your life and the priesthood have remained and must needs remain through you and your lineage until restoration of all things spoken by the mouths of all the holy prophets since the world began. Therefore, blessed are ye if ye continue in my goodness, a light unto the Gentiles, and through this priesthood a savior unto my people Israel. The Lord has said it, amen. Basically saying, you, you still have this commitment to God, you still have this commitment to the gospel, to be a light unto the Gentiles. And if you do all of that stuff, um, you're going to be okay. Kind of like you were saying, I, I think we need to keep in mind what the goal, what the end goal is. And what he's saying here is that there will be a point in which there is a separation of those that were committed and were that did their best, weren't perfect necessarily, but did their best to try, and those that kind of eventually gave up. And luckily, that's not for us to decide who's wheat and who's tares, right? The Lord will decide that for us. But he'll be able to know what our efforts have been and where we've said, I'm going to continue doing this. And times when we've said, I've had enough, I'm going to quit. This is too hard. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because often it's really easy to look at the wheat and the tares and be like, oh, there's there's intruders among us. There's, you know. <laughs> covert agents and and i think there's some of that there's there's you know um there are individuals with malicious intent that pretend to be good but they aren't good they're looking to harm people or to lead people away and that kind of thing or to prove the church is false type of thing you know there's some of that but then i think about the other you know in in verse um what is it verse two verily i say the field the field was the world and the apostles were the sowers of the seed, you know. So he's trying to explain a little bit this parable. And after they had fallen asleep, a great persecutor of the church, the apostate, the whore, even Babylon, and maketh all nations drink of her cup, whose heart the enemy, even Satan, sitteth and reigneth. Behold, he soweth the tares, wherefore the tares choke the wheat and drive the church into the wilderness. And I think about it's 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 much harder to try to teach someone the gospel when they have a very firm wrong sense of who Christ is and what Christianity means, you know. And some of that I feel is like it says here, this this that maketh all nations drink of her cup, and whose heart the enemy, even Satan, sitteth to reign. So there is some malicious design in these tares where by by a lot of churches claiming and and doing things not correctly through authority they have made it very difficult for those that are searching for the truth to find it you know kind of in the area of joseph smith even in our era you know it's there's a lot of confusion and different doctrines of men mingled with scripture type of thing out there right and then i look at i i like to understand that in one aspect as far as the Lord knows there's going to be imitators out there. The Lord knows that his name will be used for good and bad. 
And so when we as his disciples see people that are misrepresenting the Lord or or or, or, or doing things, we it shouldn't dissuade us from the truth. Yeah, I used to always think, why would the Lord allow people to to use his name to do bad things? You know, that really bothers me and it still bothers me to this day. But then I have to think because we have agency and the Lord lets truth win. You know, when people find it, you'll, you'll know, you know. And then there's the other part of it, the, the personal part of it. And this goes back to Matthew 13 to to the parable of the sower. You know, and if the sower are the apostles planting the seeds and the prophets, it talks about uh, in Matthew 13, verse 3, 4, or 5, where it talks about, uh, Behold, the sower went forth, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. And some fell in stony places, and there wasn't much earth. And, and forthwith they sprung up. Behold, they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, because they had no root. They withered away. And some fell in the thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. And others fell on good ground and brought forth fruit. Some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who, who has ears to hear? Let him hear. And so I kind of, I don't know, maybe I mix these two parables and I shouldn't, but I kind of like that because I thought, well, our responsibility then is to make sure we have, that we are living amongst prophets and apostles, that we take their words and plant them into good soil in our hearts. You know, and as we do that, we know, I love how the Lord tells us kind of a lot of the times he lets his saints know, this is the environment that's going on. This is where, where what what's going to happen. The environment is you're going to have tares amongst you. You're going to have people that imitate the church, imitate discipleship, imitate goodness, but ultimately they're not going to go the distance, you know. And don't when you see that, don't get discouraged because I'm telling you that that's how it's going to be, right? Now, personally, your responsibility is how do you make sure that you're a wheat and not a tear, right? How do you make sure that you you are following your covenants and, and, and you're, you know, consecrating your time and you're forgiving others and you're trying to be united? No, I think that the first natural tendency is to start to think, well, who's a wheat and who's a tear around me, you know? And it's like, instead of looking out, look inside yourself. What actions that you do are wheat actions and what are tear actions, you know, like, what are the types of thoughts that you have that may take you away from being saved in the last day or, you know, not in that sense? Section 87 is an interesting one. And I always thought growing up, and I think we had seminary lessons about this and stuff, that this was like a thir- like a 30-year projection on the Civil War. And I always thought, you know, this is... How did no one see this? How did no one hear about this and say, what is this that's happening? It even mentions South Carolina. Like, how could people be so blind to this prophecy? And it's just because I didn't know the history behind this. And it's interesting because you read um, in the Revelations in Context book about Section 87, and they're talking about, uh, it says, uh, a few days before Christmas 1832, Latter-day Saints in Kirtland came in from the cold, damp air to sit by the light of their warm, flickering fires. They opened up their local paper 
the Painesville Telegraph to find alarming news. 700 miles to the south, the legislature of South Carolina, a state within the United States, had declared null and void taxes placed on imported goods by the federal government. This move created a nullification crisis that challenged the right of the federal government to enforce its own laws. War loomed on the horizon. This had nothing to do with the Civil War that occurred in the 1860s. This was a situation that's happening right then. That South Carolina was saying, we don't want this, we don't feel like these taxes are fair to impose on us because they're meant to protect northern companies from um, imported goods, from having to compete with foreign companies. It has nothing to do with us, so we shouldn't have to pay this tax. So what I first learned about that was that there was something that may have caused a civil war at that time, 30 years prior to when the civil war actually occurred. Then the interesting thing is that Joseph Smith gets this revelation, right? So Joseph Smith followed this conflict closely through the newspapers that passed into Kirtland. He appended a note in his history about the people of South Carolina declaring their state a free and independent nation and the proclamation against this rebellion given by President Jackson. And then following these lines, Joseph inserted what he called a prophecy on war, a revelation he dictated to his clerk, Frederick G. Williams, on Christmas Day, 1832, just days after the startling news appeared in the Kirtland Papers. This revelation is known today as Doctrine and Covenants 87. Now, he doesn't say anything about President Jackson in there, but he does mention South Carolina, and he does say that through its actions, peace and prosperity will deface this free intercourse we will interrupt, these fertile fields we will deluge with blood. Yet if South Carolina backed down, the deluge would be avoided. In Joseph Smith's prophecy, however, bloodshed was a foregone conclusion. The wars that will shortly come to pass, beginning at the rebellion of South Carolina, the revelation said, will eventually terminate in the death and misery of many souls. Revelation foreshadowed no peaceful resolution. So here's the thing. The prophecy is saying this is an inevitability. War will happen. There will be bloodshed. Um, there is no peaceful resolution to this. But the whole nullification crisis in South Carolina in the 1830s did have a peaceful ending. In fact, it didn't last very long. They, they passed a new law basically saying we're going to reduce this tax for those that don't need it, that don't use this. And at that, that, at least for a while, made South Carolina feel like, okay, we won. We, had our, we got our way. So <laughs> um, it might seem like this was a preemptive uh, revelation. And in some ways, I think Joseph Smith was kind of like, wait, I got this revelation saying this, this thing was going to be an inevitable war, and yet it is already solved, right? And it says, to the great surprise of all, the nullification crisis ended almost before it began. This peaceful revolution of the crisis pleased everyone but the most ardent firebrands. As a follower of Christ, Joseph Smith loved peace and welcomed compromise. He looked forward to the return of the Prince of Peace and his peaceful millennial reign. But the dire predictions contained in the prophecy on war, tied as they were to contemporary events, must have puzzled Joseph. The death, and, the death and misery of many souls did not occur. The southern states continued to be divided against the north over the question of slavery, but the slaves did not rise up against their masters, and South Carolina did not call on Great Britain for help. Anyone looking for the fulfillment of the revelation in 1833 would have been disappointed. And I wonder, in that moment, I mean, we're talking 30 years before the Civil War actually occurs. In that moment, it might have seemed kind of like, did we get this wrong? Uh, is this prophecy not what it, what it was supposed to be? And it even says in here that Joseph Smith kind of was reluctant to highlight this prophecy a whole lot or bring it up 
he kind of mentions to a newspaper editor, not many years shall pass away before the United States shall present such a scene of bloodshed as has not been parallel in the history of our nation. But he doesn't go into South Carolina and this and this and that and all these details from the prophecy. He just kind of says, hey, I, I think soon there will be a big problem. And he kind of, I don't want to say he, he kind of pushes it under the rug, but it's kind of like a, I don't know how this fits yet. And I don't know how this will be, this prophecy will be fulfilled yet. So I don't really want to make it a big deal and go out and say, hey, world, listen, I just got this prophecy and this is going to happen. And it even says, Joseph was sure of his prior revelations. He had felt the voice of God speak through him before and had seen those words come to pass. He must have wondered if this revelation was a case of false prophecy, or if the prophecy was true, what would God have Joseph do now that peace, even if temporary, had been achieved? Now, we have the sight, the, the, the knowledge of what ended up happening, and that this prophecy did end up coming true 30 years later. By the way, Joseph Smith was no longer alive when the Civil War happened, so he never got to see this prophecy fulfill itself. But he it wasn't wrong and it wasn't misled and it wasn't it may have seemed that way to him and to others around him because it's like this thing's gonna happen nothing happened wow what the heck was that you know but i wonder how many times things like that happen where a prophet gets a prophecy and it may feel extremely relevant in that moment and then something changes and it's like, well, why did I receive that prophecy? Or why did we receive this news? When it appears as if nothing's going to come of that. And it's not about that moment. It's about something that will happen in the future. And as I, we've kind of talked about in the past, you know, nothing can undo the work of the Lord or whatever. I'm not saying the Civil War is necessarily the work of the Lord. Like, there, maybe people made choices that averted a war in that moment. They used their agency to allow a war to not happen in the 1830s. But the fact of the matter is it didn't solve all the problems that were still there. There were still underlying problems within South Carolina, within the country, within slavery that had not been resolved. And so it was still kind of an inevitable thing. There had to be a reckoning of some sort in this country to to move past those issues. Yeah, I, I think about two things. One, I think about the Book of Mormon, the introduction of the Book of Mormon, when Moroni, he's or Mormon, Mormon, he says, and I will show you here how these secret combinations became the downfall of these people, you know, and yet over and over again, they were able to kind of avert that catastrophe through Alma and, and King Benjamin and Nephi and all of these individuals going out and preaching the word again and kind of reining everything back in. But you know, in hindsight, Mormon is looking at the end and saying, if I could say one thing that caused this, it was these secret combinations. It's almost like we could deal with people not obeying the gospel, but we couldn't deal with the ultimately this this the secret combination business, right? These Gadianton robbers, right? And then I look at um, you know. I look at that and I and I, I look at the scenario and then I look at the proclamation of the family, you know, where I feel it's very similar, where I, the more time goes by, the more it becomes not so much a document of advice, but like a warning of 
how our society is going to de devolve, you know, how it's going to collapse before the second. Co That's kind of what it feels like to me when when, you know, the family is attacked through all these various methods. And then I look at this and I think maybe the Lord is showing Joseph Smith a pattern. You know, were, were these maybe I don't know, maybe where these ingredients are pre present will inevitably lead to conflict. And there are times when prophets, and, and I look at that and I say, Moroni, Mormon, Nephi, Alma, I think they were all shown in several scriptures. You can see, they see the inevitable demise of their seed. And the only seed that will, 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 the last will be the Lamanites. And then they prophesy about them. And then the last days, the Lord will gather the Lamanites again and be merciful to them. You know, because a lot of their problems are going to be more to do with the false traditions of their ancestors. You know? <laughs> and uh, and I look at that. Yet, when they spoke and when they preached, they did it as if this right here is going to turn this boat around. Because I think it still could have. I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time believing in predestination. Because that makes me feel like then there's really no agency. But when I buy into agency, then I think, yeah, I wonder how many prophecies have been, uh, you know, this will happen. It's almost like if you give your son advice and you say, son, if you keep drinking and not getting to work on time and, and uh, you're not going to have a job, you're going to end up homeless. <laughs> and there's like a really high likelihood that that happens if he continues to drink and not go to work and and you know but why is a prophecy given is it to so the lord can say hey look i knew what was going to happen the whole time i'm so great or is it as a warning so you can change this it doesn't have to be like this but if you're headed in this direction it's going to be like that and then your son cleans up his act he becomes responsible he gets a good job you know and next thing you know i, I don't know i I, I feel that they're meant to be a, a, a warning. It's almost like when the Lord talks about the gifts of the Spirit and the gift of tongues. If it doesn't profit anybody, then it was just kind of a waste of time, you know. And I feel like in some scenarios, if if you're being given everything that's going to happen line by line, do you then have agency? You know, or can you act and do things and either prepare or advert we see you know joseph in the in the his his prophecy well not his prophecy but the dream of pharaoh about the seven years of bounty and seven years of, of famine why was that given to him well for preparation's sake you know and then you look at this prophecy to to joseph what was it to maybe it did maybe it did change things maybe it prepared the saints you know maybe you know maybe it prepares us later on you know well it's definitely true that in verse eight the final verse it kind of tells us what to do here's all this stuff that's going to happen okay so what does that mean for us what do we need to do wherefore stand ye in holy places and be not moved until the day of the lord come for behold it cometh quickly and it's basically saying it doesn't matter what else is going to happen in the world it doesn't matter what else is going to happen around you no matter how chaotic this all gets Stand ye in holy places and be not moved. Like, remember what the most important things of this life are. Remember that your your 
consecration of your time is to the Lord. Remember all of that. And, you know, because I feel like especially in our day, um, it feels like from one day to the next, things are getting thrown around. We've got a pandemic. We've got political strife all over the world. It's really easy to get kind of concerned about, well, what are we going to do? And 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 what what where do we stand on this? And you have to have a it seems like nowadays you have to have a, a position, an official stance on every single topic. Right. <laughs> like everything that comes up, you have to be like, oh, not only have I researched this in depth, but I have a, a well thought out statement. Let me read my official statement now, you know, about every single topic. And the Lord's saying, look, the most important thing is that you remember what your the whole point of this life is and you remember where happiness comes from and you stand there and you be there. And it's it's interesting that that's also one of the topics, one of the kind of headings in the lesson, you know, that peace is found in holy places. Where do we get peace? Where can I turn for peace? Um, you turn to the Lord, you turn to the gospel, you turn to what will ever will bring the spirit. That's where you can turn for peace. There's well, a quote by Sister Vicky F. Matsumori. Um, she's a former counselor in the primary general presidency. She said, because the spirit is often described as a still small voice, it's important to have a time of quiet in our lives as well. The Lord has counseled us to be still and know that I am God. If we provide a still and quiet time each day when we are not bombarded by television, computer, video games, or, or personal electronic devices, we allow that still small voice an opportunity to provide personal revelation and to whisper sweet guidance, reassurance, and comfort to us. She's not saying television, computer, video games, and personal devices are evil and should be avoided at all costs. What she's saying is, give yourself time of quiet time of stillness and i can personally testify that that is an incredibly useful skill to develop it's not easy think of it as meditation this is not just sitting there quietly doing nothing this is pondering this is praying this is time when you're actually separating the world from you for a little bit and focusing your thoughts when you're trying to do that that's when the spirit speaks to you it's always interesting to me when people are like I don't need to go to church because I, I do yoga or I do meditation and I feel a greater connection to uh, to God or to the life energy in that way. And I, I get where they're coming from in that sense, because a lot of times I don't think church is necessarily meant to be that still quiet place. Um, it's a, It serves a different purpose. That still quiet place when you are actively trying to think through your your issues and you're pondering things and you're praying, of course, you're going to have a greater connection to God in those moments. You're basically saying, I'm welcoming in whatever the spirit wants to tell me. I think those two things together, attending church and learning from one another and sharing that community, but also taking time for yourself every day, at least for a couple minutes to kind of have that stillness. Those those two things paired together are imperative. You can receive revelation in church. You can receive revelation on the public transit. You know, it doesn't matter. But when you open yourself up to that, when you say, I'm going to stand in holy places or I'm going to make where I am in my own mind a holy place, you you are much more receptive to revelation, to guidance, to warning, all of that from, from the spirit. Yeah, I think I... I like how the Lord has always, he prepares us for the storm ahead and lets us know, you know, 
where the destination is, like the tree of life, right? You look at that, that um, the dream of the tree of life that Lehi and the Nephi had, the vision. Of the dream. Maybe it was a dream and then it was a vision for Nephi. Um, they're told the objective. Look at this most beautiful tree. Look what, how happy you will be if you get there and partake, right? Now, on the way there, there's a bar. There's something to hang on to, okay? But there's also a mist of darkness. There's the dirty water. There's the building of, of being mocked. He kind of lets us know what you're going to experience, and then ultimately, it's up to you to decide. Now, if you let go of the rod and you go into the fog, here, let me tell you, there's many that never return from that. You know, if you decide to go into the river, there's many that drown. And then there's even some that make it all the way, but then they are paying more attention to the people in the building mocking you. And so then they feel ashamed or they choose to leave, right? And then there's others that they just do their own thing, right? <laughs> and and that's almost like a prophecy, you know? Because we we that that surely comes to pass. It's like a it's like a pattern. But its purpose is to help us understand the context and how things happen. You know? And I think I think you're absolutely right. You need to be able to consecrate time to the Lord, you know, as you ponder, as you think things through. And no action not you know it's it's funny because who was it elder holland i think he did a talk on a couple conferences ago on the pioneer boys who carried people across the frozen river mm -hmm. and i think they they quoted president brigham young and they kind of said well we don't know if this is a quote or it is a quote that this act alone and and they said something along the lines of we can't say that but I will tell you one act that will guarantee, and that's the act of the atonement, you know? And I think for us, we have to think about in these days where we live, we're, we're living in a time where we're told is the fullness of the dispensation of the fullness of times where prophecies are being given every day. We have apostles and prophets and that are always counseling us, general conferences. There's an abundance of knowledge in counsel. There's equally an abundance of distractions, abundance of temptations, abundance of misinformation. And so how do you siphon through that? You know, and I think sometimes we have to we have to calm down and go back to step one. And and sometimes we have to shed a lot of barnacles and beliefs and kind of cleanse ourselves and go back to the basics. And and then from there you begin you build everything back up again and you you kind of well what is the purpose of this life you know what are these emotions I feel for people I love what am I going to do with my time am I going to serve the people I love or how am I going to serve myself and then find that it's harder to love yourself when you're selfish you know you think you think you could love yourself more the more you devote your time to yourself. And it's actually, it doesn't work that way. You actually increase your capacity to love by loving others. And then the Lord asks us, well, you know that inner circle that you love? How about expanding that a little bit to your neighbors? How about expanding that to your ward? 
How about expanding it to your enemies? Even that seems far-fetched, but remember how far-fetched it was to to read the scriptures and feel like you got answers to your prayers, to pray and, you know, to fast, you know, you know, and, and you continue down this pattern, this evolution where the Lord's just giving us more and increasing our ability to feel things and to do things. And even these lessons, I mean, for me in Doctrine and Covenants, it's been, I always viewed it as tidbits because it is tidbits. It's not a continuous narrative story, kind of like the Book of Mormon. Um, but in it, what I've been able, what I've tried to strive to do is put myself as if I'm just a regular saint in that time. And then I'm reading these things and I'm trying to piece together. And I'm seeing that the Lord is using the same pattern to build his people there that he used in the Book of Mormon, that he uses in the New Testament, that he used in the Old Testament. We just have a greater amount of detail of kind of the everyday management and little issues that the saints dealt with in the Doctrine and Covenants, you know. And in the Book of Mormon, we have kind of more of a, a greater overall family arch story of what happened to these people. And in the New Testament, we have a very like focused view on the ministry of the Savior, you know. And in the Old Testament, we have kind of like these dispensations, like this really long view, very little detail. And sometimes you can get scratch your hand and say, how the heck? Well, there's <laughs> things missing, you know. You're not yeah. seeing everything and you're just, you're barely seeing kind of a, like almost like a fuzzy telescope into the past you know but the patterns are there where you see that the lord is the same continuously you know and just as the lord the way he deals with president nelson now where he wakes him up and gives him ideas and gives him revelations for us in our day same thing happened to joseph smith in his time hey let's work on united or hey let's pay off some of the church debts hey let's do this you know and let me explain to you why and watch out for this avoid that don't drink this now that you ask let me tell you about this and then you look at the book of mormon and you gotta know it was very similar in those days hey king benjamin i think you need to talk to these people i think you should counsel them against kings i think you should counsel them to have judges you know i, I think you should move in this direction you know in the new testament and so forth and i don't know it's it's sometimes you have to take the time to just think about things and as you think about it the lord you know, will make things clearer, you know. Um, and it's funny, I I feel like, <laughs> I feel like the, the older I get, the less I tend to know, <laughs> which is kind of the opposite. But then what I do know, the sweeter it becomes. And then I realize that I always just needed the fundamentals the whole time. Um, sometimes we're grasping for for so much we want to see it all and and we have to realize that we we will walk by faith and and walking by faith is a is something that i don't know that goes away entirely if we continue to progress forever you know there are things we'll know and then once we know that then we have to take faith to know the next step and then we know then we can know that and then there's another step after that and we have to use faith for that one as well and that's okay and you know we we like you mentioned we live in a world where everyone has an opinion and a surefire reason or explanation on how the people that did things in the past were wrong how they should have done here's what they could have done better but we have an opinion on how everyone else should be living their life 
but yet our lives are out of control, you know? And and I think that's the great deception that Satan uses to have us focus on others as opposed to ourselves. Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing, for we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.